Welcome to Stop Christian Nationalism, a podcast that is willing to confront the ugliness of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism, after all, is a problem on many different levels. The most simple problem with Christian nationalism is that it seeks to completely eliminate both the Establishment Clause and the Freedom of Religion Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America. Christian nationalists want to make the United States a Christian nation with official federal government endorsement of Christianity over all other religions and non-religious life. They want to enact harsh Christian religious laws that make it a crime to defy Christian authority. Now, most Americans understand that this agenda is a dramatic departure from the promise of America as a place where all people are equal, whatever their relationship to religion may be. Christian nationalists don't see it that way. They insist that their plans to convert the United States into a Christian dictatorship are an expression of mainstream American values. Carrie Lake, for example, a Republican who is campaigning to become the next governor of Arizona on an explicitly Christian nationalist platform, steadfastly refuses to acknowledge the abnormality of Christian nationalism. At a recent campaign rally, here's what she told the crowd. You can call us extremists, you can call us domestic terrorists. You know who else was called a lot of names his whole life? Jesus. The thing is, charges of extremism and domestic terrorism in Christian nationalism don't come from nowhere. They are not random accusations, baseless name-calling. They are based in real behavior, and in real threats made by Christian nationalists, and real acts of political violence, too. Carrie Lake herself endorsed another Christian nationalist candidate. For example, that candidate declared that Jews are evil and will be thrown into a fire by Jesus. Now, objectively, it's a simple fact that Christian nationalism is extreme, and its ideology is based in terrorist violence and threats of violence. Disregarding that reality, though, Carrie Lake claims that Americans' concerns about the dangers of Christian nationalism are nothing more than name-calling. Jesus was called a lot of names, Carrie Lake says, and everyone knows that Jesus was... Well, Jesus... What was Jesus? Well... Christian nationalists clearly worship Jesus. They believe that Jesus was a model of our behavior, uh, a model of what our behavior should be. They are so deep in their Christian faith that they place that belief beyond question. They presume that uh, the moral sanctity of Jesus is beyond doubt. And it's because of that um, presumption Because Christian nationalists base their agenda upon the belief that the morality of Jesus cannot be questioned, that we who seek to oppose Christian nationalism must question the morality of Jesus. We can no longer take the Christian frame of morality for granted. Now, ironically, the supposed moral perfection of Jesus makes it easy for Christian nationalists to lead their followers into profoundly immoral behavior. In a cruel twist of moral reasoning, Christian nationalists begin with the presumption that anything Jesus said or did must be by definition moral, and then they use instances of cruelty, hatred, and violence by Jesus in the New Testament of the Christian Bible to justify their own cruelty, hatred, and violence. And it's an odd thing. But uh, most Christian Americans, they haven't really done a close reading of the Christian Bible. They rely on Bible quotes from their preachers to get a vague sense of what the Christian Bible actually says about Jesus. 
But if you sit down to read the Christian Bible without a lens of faith, it becomes apparent that Jesus was not a nice guy. And it's not just me saying this. Christian nationalist leaders openly acknowledge that Jesus was not a kind and compassionate person. Ken Harrison, the CEO of the right-wing Christian nationalist organization Promise Keepers, for example, recently warned against the belief that Jesus is nice. Here's what Harrison said. And we've taught a Jesus that's an idol. It's not the real Jesus. We've taught a Jesus that says that love means being nice to everybody all the time. Well, when I read my Bible, Jesus wasn't very nice. He was not very nice most of the time. I mean, when you're saying, <laughs> right. I set the world on fire and how I wish it was already alight, and I came to turn father against son and mother against daughter, what was Jesus saying? Love is forcing people to make a choice. Jesus doesn't really want to save the world, Harrison points out. Jesus actually aims to destroy the world, to set it on fire. Jesus doesn't want to bring people together, Harrison says. Jesus wants to create division and strife. This is not some kind of radical communist saying this. This is what the Bible says. This is what a Christian nationalist leader says about what the Bible says. Harrison tells us that, quote, love is forcing people, unquote. In Christianity, love is not about acceptance and respect. Christian love is about the use of force to make people do what religious leaders think they should do. This is what the Bible itself says. Now, progressive Christians might protest that Jesus would never support the use of force and coercion to compel people to submit to Christian authority. The Christian Bible, however, does not support this interpretation. The New Testament is filled with examples of Jesus threatening people with acts of extreme violence. Occasionally, Jesus even launches into direct, violent, physical attacks against people who dare to disagree with his religious beliefs. The Gospels of the New Testament say that more than once, Jesus physically attacked people in the sacred temple of Jerusalem. Jesus is depicted in the Christian Bible as lashing people with a whip and destroying their property, chasing them away in fear. Why would Jesus violently assault people like that? Well, Jesus was upset at them because they were engaged in acts of ritualized commerce that were commonly accepted as part of the religious rites of the Jewish temple at that time. Jesus didn't approve, though. He didn't approve of this religious activity, and he wanted something different to take place in the temple. But instead of talking about his ideas reasonably with the people there or with the temple's religious leaders, Jesus chose to just violently attack and terrify people into submission. Jesus went much further than that, of course. The New Testament records Jesus as showing the signs of a paranoid, narcissistic personality disorder. He insisted on being recognized as a divine being who should instantly be granted the authority to rule as king. And then, when people quite understandably refused to immediately worship him as a god-king, Jesus would frequently lash out and make threats of extreme violence. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, Jesus explains how he should be understood as a divine king. And he does this by telling the story of a king who becomes furious at people who don't follow his instructions to the letter while he's gone. This king's tirade ends with him issuing an order for deadly violence. Quote, Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Unquote. This is Jesus warning people that if they don't submit to his authority, he's going to kill them. 
Got Questions is a Christian website that aims to explain some of the most bizarre and cruel passages in the Christian Bible. And Got Questions says of this Bible verse, quote, The enemies who rejected the king in the parable are representative of the Jewish nation that rejected Christ while he walked the earth and everyone who still denies him today. When Jesus returns to establish his kingdom, one of the first things he will do is utterly defeat his enemies. It does not pay to fight against the king of kings. Unquote. That website got questions. It identifies yet another Bible passage that has been used to justify the slaughter of Jews by Christians for centuries. But it doesn't argue against the anti-Semitic violence. Instead, Got Questions accepts that whatever Jesus does is acceptable, that it's right, that it's moral. So it repeats the idea that Jews should be targeted rightly by Christians, violently. Right after threatening to kill anyone who doesn't follow him, Jesus marched into the city of Jerusalem and announced that he was the king. And when the people of Jerusalem didn't respond positively to that, Jesus again launched into a fit of rage, and he cursed the children of Jerusalem to be slaughtered because their parents did not immediately acclaim him to be God king. Jesus declared, quote, They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Unquote. Now, when Jesus talks about the time of God's coming, he was talking about himself. Jesus was saying this curse that Jerusalem's children would be slaughtered because the city refused to recognize and worship him as a god. Immediately after saying this curse against Jerusalem's children, Jesus violently attacked people in the city's temple. This wasn't the only time that Jesus threatened to kill a large number of people for the offense of refusing to worship him. The Gospel of Matthew proudly relates the story of Jesus screaming death threats at the residents of three different cities that would not acclaim him as their divine ruler. Then he, meaning Jesus, began to reproach the cities in which most of his deeds of power had been done because they would, did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for the deeds of power done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. To understand what this passage from the Christian Bible is saying, you have to understand what actually happened to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Um, now, the city of Tyre was built on an island near to the city of Sidon. And its residents hoped that being on that island would enable them to defy a siege by Alexander the Great. And that siege lasted for seven months. But at the end of it, the city's defenses fell and Alexander swept in and he was in such a terrible rage that he ordered his soldiers to just tear down half of the city's buildings. And 7,000 soldiers from Tyre were killed in that first assault. And then 2,000 more of them were executed after surrendering. But that was not the end of the bloodshed. After the fighting was done, 8,000 civilian inhabitants of Tyre 
were executed and 30,000 more were sold into slavery. Practically everyone there was slaughtered. Now, the fate of Sodom was a legend in the Old Testament. The entire city was devastated. Everybody there was slaughtered, even the little babies. All because that city refused to comply with the religious laws that the writers of the Bible believed were proper. Again, differences about religious points of view are met with slaughter in both the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus warns the city of Chorazin, uh, Bethsaida, and Capernaum that they will be destroyed and all of their residents killed or sold into slavery as punishment for refusing to worship Jesus as a God king. So Jesus had just walked into these cities, performed some little faith healing tricks of the sort that's done at carnivals and tent revivals all the time. And he claimed that he was a divine being who deserved to be treated like a king. Well, you know, that's not normal behavior. And we do actually see this happening quite often. The people with mental health issues come in and maybe they're cult leaders and they declare that they should be treated as divine entities. You know, that happens, but what's the normal reaction to that? Is the normal reaction to say, well, if you say so, that's great. Oh, and you just did a little trick there. Well, sure, I'll treat you like you're a divine being. That's not the normal reaction that people have to that. It's actually pretty understandable that people would be skeptical or want someone like this to go away. So these cities told Jesus to take his cheap tricks and to move along. In fact, almost everybody who met Jesus seemed to think that he was a fraud, a charlatan, and a troublemaker. He was yelling at people, doing death threats, attacking people in the temple. This is not a person who was trying to get along. He wasn't making it easy for anybody to be his supporter. And yet here he is making more death threats against these three cities, declaring that he would use his magical powers to enact a mass slaughter on them, on these cities, just killing everyone in there because they wouldn't worship him. What's really chilling is that Christians today cite these same Bible passages as examples of how wicked non-Christians are. How wicked non-Christians are for refusing to bow down to the angry, jealous, paranoid, hateful power of Jesus. They repeat these ancient stories as a warning that all of those people who refuse to submit to the power of Christianity will be killed. Many times in history, actual mass slaughter has been justified using these precise Bible stories of the divine fury of Jesus. In the Bible, this character of Jesus was not kind and gentle. He taught his followers to make death threats. He taught that killing large numbers of people is not only morally excusable, but it's the right thing to do. So Christian nationalist Ken Harrison is right about the character of Jesus in the Bible. Jesus was not a nonviolent, nice guy. He was not a prince of peace. Jesus was an out-of-control maniac who made enemies everywhere that he went by screaming at people on the street and threatening to kill them. The Christian Bible itself says that Jesus was full of hate, and Christian nationalists today Follow that example. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. Upon seeing how the Christian Bible depicts Jesus as hateful and violent, people are faced with a choice. They could choose to reject hate and violence by rejecting Christianity. Many people are doing that, as a matter of fact. 
It's one of the reasons Christianity is in decline in the United States. A lot of people are just sick and tired of Christian cruelty. They're sick and tired of being yelled at in the same way that Jesus yelled at people on the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, you know, Christian nationalists are screaming at everybody, telling everybody what to do, trying to restrict people's freedom because they want everybody to believe that they have a holy, sacred, divine book. And we're all just supposed to go along with that. Just like Jesus wanted these entire cities of people to just agree that he was a God king. You know, the, the, the troubling thing is the choice that Christian nationalists are making. When they are confronted with the fact that Jesus was cruel and hateful and violent, people like uh, this uh, Ken Harrison, CEO of the Promise Keepers, what they do is they double down on their Christian belief. And instead of rejecting hate and violence, they say, well, if Jesus said that it's okay to be hateful and violent and scream at people and control other people's lives because that's what Jesus did, well, that's fine. They conclude that they therefore have divine permission to act with cruelty and violence themselves. So another preacher, Stephen Lawson of One Passion Ministries, cites a passage from the Christian Bible as a justification for this religious hatred. When Christians hate people, Lawson suggests, they are following a divine example of Jesus. Lawson said this in a recent message to his followers. And the title of this devotion today is A Loving Hatred. A loving hatred, and that sounds like an oxymoron, but both sides of that are true. And so I want to begin by reading the verse. This is our Lord's letter to the church at Ephesus, and he writes this, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus has just commended the Ephesians um, for their perseverance in the Lord and in his work and how they don't tolerate false teachers. And Jesus commends them for their hatred. He says that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and then he adds, which I also hate. I mean, the holiness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ necessitates that there is a, 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 a holy hatred for all that which does not conform to Christ's own flawless, perfect uh, character and integrity. A loving hatred. What the heck, right? Okay, here's what's going on. Lawson is referring here to a specific passage in the New Testament book of Revelation. In this passage, Jesus, after rising from his grave, instructed his followers that they were right to practice hatred and reassured them, reassured them that he practiced hatred himself. Conveniently, Jesus just so happened to hate the very same people that his followers in this church in Ephesus hated. They were the Nicolaitans. Who were the Nicolaitans? Um, they were an early sect of Christianity, but not very much is known about them because the more powerful sects of Christianity persecuted them into complete oblivion. Specifically, it has been alleged that the Nicolaitans held a doctrine that permitted them to eat food that had been sacrificed to Jesus and that they believed in some degree of sexual freedom. Huh, sexual freedom. Well, Jesus declared that his followers should hate the Nicolaitans because they liked to have sex and eat food. That same attitude is what we're suffering under with the hateful, unforgiving agenda of today's Christian nationalists. According to the Christian Bible, it was Jesus who first taught Christians to hate like that. For many Christians, 
Belief in the redemptive power of the crucifixion of Jesus depends upon the belief that Jesus was a perfect manifestation of a God, only temporarily in human form. There's a problem, however, with believing that Jesus was a perfect human being. If people believe that Jesus was perfect and did not have a dark side, that means that Christianity as the religion of Jesus, must also be perfect. So, for many Christians, to even question the perfection of Christianity is to, perf- is to question the perfection of Jesus. For them, questioning the perfection of Jesus puts all of the big promises of Christian faith at risk. So instead of looking honestly at the flaws and the ugly aspects of Christianity, these Christian believers close their eyes to the problems, and they insist that Christianity cannot do anything wrong. Of course, this insistence does not match the obvious reality of what Christianity has been doing. In the present and throughout the last 2,000 years of history, there are many examples of Christians doing terrible things. So in desperation, when confronted with that reality, people who cling to belief in a perfect Christianity resort to one last itty-bitty scrap of an argument. They claim that whenever Christians do bad things, they do those bad things because somehow they aren't really Christians. They argue that whenever a sect of Christianity is found to be engaged in despicable acts, it all happened because that sect is in heresy and is not a part of real Christianity at all. We see the consequences of this line of thinking in progressive Christianity, Christians who don't like Christian nationalism, and they want to preach against it, but they refuse to acknowledge much less to deal with the roots of Christian nationalism in Christianity. They tell us that Christian nationalism is an imposter Christianity supported by fake Christians. Well, for these progressive Christians, reality is whatever they believe it to be, rather than what it is observed to be. Though they argue with Christian nationalists about the interpretation of their faith-based sense of reality, they share with Christian nationalists the elevation of belief above observation. Progressive Christians and Christian nationalists alike place more trust in an invisible magical world of spirits and gods than they place in the world where we actually live. Christian nationalist preacher Joffrey Greider uses faith in the Christian Bible to justify his absolutist political beliefs. Here's what Greider tells his followers. You have to know what you know, what you know to be truth. Now, this may be a revelation for some people listening, but as far as I can tell, There is only one place that has absolute perfect truth, and that is in your King James Bible. I understand that's a narrow way to look at it. I understand that that is an old, archaic way of thinking. That may be so, but that does not change the fact that the only place that you're going to find absolute truth is in your King James Bible, and the only way you're going to be able to leverage that absolute truth is that you are going to have to have the Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth. This Christian Holy Spirit that Jeffrey Greider is talking about has never been objectively confirmed to exist. It's never been observed in any kind of way that could be measured or recorded or examined at a later time. Its presence has only ever been experienced subjectively as a feeling. 
So what Jeffrey Ryder is saying is that the truth is something that people have to feel emotionally and that such feelings can be trusted more than the facts that have been confirmed with centuries of careful scientific study and rigorously tested observations. This Christian practice of trusting subjective beliefs and feelings more than objective reality has practical consequences. When Christian nationalists turn their attention to worldly political power. These consequences are especially plain when it comes to the issue of climate change. The preacher that we just heard from, Jeffrey Greider, is a Christian nationalist who shares his sermons through a media project called the Now the End Begins Bible Study. Now the End Begins Bible Study has been declaring for the last 13 years that the end times are just about to begin. Well, in all that time, the end times have actually not begun. Nevertheless, Grider continues to spread the same message as ever, as if his false predictions had never taken place. This kind of smooth glide over conceptual inconsistencies is standard practice in Grider's preaching. In the year 2011, Jeffrey Grider declared that Donald Trump was, quote, a ratings-seeking egomaniacal fraud. And he declared that, quote, Trump's popularity in GOP polls shows how desperate and pitiful Republicans and conservatives are, unquote. But six years later, by 2017, Grider had completely reversed course, writing that, quote, God has placed his hand on Donald Trump to fulfill his will, unquote. So I think you can see Grider does not bother with the facts of the moment, For him, truth is eternal, and truth is defined only by what's in the Christian Bible. So, according to Grider's reading of the Christian Bible, climate change is not caused by human industrial pollution. Instead, Grider insists that climate change is part of the plan of the Christian God to roast the earth as a part of the end times that are perpetually about to begin. Greider says that climate scientists are just pagans who worship the goddess Gaia. Here's what he says. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Climate change, or more accurately, Gaia, has become the new religion for pagans. Climate change is the willful worship of the creature combined with the intentional ignorance of the creator. Your King James Bible has a whole lot to say about the coming climate changes that God is about to release, as well as what the end times religion of Antichrist looks like. It looks a whole lot like the agenda being pushed by the climate change police. You may remember that about a decade ago, Christian nationalists were saying that global warming was not happening at all. They said it wasn't real. They said it was a hoax. Now that the reality of climate change is practically undeniable, Christian nationalists like Jeffrey Greider have changed their rhetoric, arguing that climate change is real, but it's a good thing because it's part of the Christian God's sacred plan to destroy the earth. Greider tells his followers that to try to stop or slow down climate change would be a blasphemy against the Christian God. So, as a Bible believer, I understand that, yes, our global climate is changing rapidly, and no, There is nothing you can do about it, and there is no power on the face of this earth that can stop it. The Bible says this in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, 
in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the element shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, that is not conjecture. That is not opinion. That is the word of the Lord telling you that when Revelation 19 is taking place at the battle of Armageddon, going into the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ all the way to the great white throne judgment. That's what 2 Peter 3.10 is talking about, ultimately and doctrinally. Uh, Turn to Revelation chapter 20, and I'll show you when that verse gets fulfilled. 2 Peter, uh, Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. So Revelation 20 verse 11 shows you God destroying the heavens and the earth because he's going to remake them. And 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And then Peter asks a question. And this is the question that I'm going to ask you in light of climate change. Seeing then, verse 11 of 2 Peter 3, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Jeffrey Grider acknowledges that global warming is happening, but he insists that its heat is the fervent will of the Christian God. Greider wraps up his online sermon by telling his followers that climate change should not be slowed down, but it should be hastened. It should be sped up so that Christians can finally, after centuries of waiting, be raptured up to heaven and the world can be destroyed. Wow. Well, Hey, let's come up for air for just one moment of scientific reality about what is really happening with climate change. There have been zero confirmed observations of any god or any other spirit causing climate change. There is, however, a huge body of scientific research that has established a causal link between human industrial and agricultural pollution and global temperature rise, ocean acidification, and sea level rise. There is no serious scientific question about this anymore. And there hasn't been for many years. Even the big fossil fuels companies have stopped arguing that anthropogenic climate change is not real. So the thing you have to understand is that scientists, they don't work like Christian preachers. They don't start with a fervent belief and then look for justification of that belief. They begin with directly observed facts, and they run carefully designed experiments to test their interpretations of those facts. Scientists construct theories about the facts, but then they test those theories with rigorous skepticism. They encourage their colleagues to find the flaws in their reasoning so that they can refine their understanding over time. Scientists work in this way so that people can make responsible decisions about the challenges we face. They provide the material we need to inform governmental policies to make investments of resources more successful. Okay? So, in contrast to that, Christian preachers like Joffrey Greider, they pick up a book written thousands of years ago by nobody knows exactly who or how many people, 
and they presume on the basis of nothing other than faith, the fact that they want it to be true, they presume that everything in that book, everything in the book, is true. And they presume that it even all makes some kind of single bit of coherent sense, rather than just being a collection of different works by different people, which is what it appears to be. As Christian nationalists, they want the federal government to make actual policy decisions based upon the basis of that blind faith in that ancient book. Instead of doing the work that scientists are doing to measure and to test models of actual reality. Jeffrey Greider, unfortunately, is not an outlier. He's not on the fringe of American Christianity. Now, there are some branches of Christianity in the United States that do acknowledge scientific reality, that acknowledge that, yes, anthropogenic, meaning human-caused climate change is happening. Uh, But there are a huge number of Christian churches out there where preachers are spreading the message that climate change should be welcomed because it is a sign that at long last the Christian God is beginning to destroy the earth. To destroy the earth in this faith-based way of seeing things is something good that we're supposed to welcome. Rich Schmidt is one of these people. He's a preacher with Prophecy Focus Ministries in Union Grove, Wisconsin. He concurs with Jeffrey Greider. Like Greider, Schmidt teaches his followers that climate change is not the consequence of massive greenhouse gas pollution, but is instead the result of the magical powers exercised by the God of the Christian Bible. Here is what Schmidt says. The heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. My dear friend, I trust you placed your faith and trust in Christ. I trust you understand that climate change is the globalists are trying to portray as wrong, and that we'll understand that God made it very clear. Yes, this earth will one day be dissolved in heat, but not for at least a thousand and seven years. 1,007 years. Where did Schmidt get that precise number? It comes from doing Bible math. Schmidt explains. Let me make it clear now. We just talked about if the rapture happens today, there's going to be what? There is a minimum of a seven-year tribulation period that is going to exist. In other words, there's no way that this earth is going to end at, at a minimum for seven years. Now let's go to the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. Uh, in Revelation uh, 6 through 19, if you have your Bible and you're still in Revelation 16, flip over to Revelation chapter 20 for a moment. If you look there, God makes it very clear that Jesus Christ will inaugurate a one thousand year millennial kingdom at the end of that seven year tribulation period so we have the seven year tribulation period jesus christ himself mounts up on a white horse in heaven with his saints revelation 1911 comes down to this earth goes to what's known as the battlefield of armageddon revelation 1616 wipes out all those who are offensive to him he ends up going to jerusalem makes the massive temple in which he will rule from, spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, and what will take place. It makes it very clear, six times in seven verses in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 7, six times in seven verses, 1,000-year kingdom where Jesus will be ruling and reigning on this earth. You say, well, wait a minute. If the Bible is true, which of course it is, if that scenario is true, which it is going to be, that means there is a minimum of 1,007 years if the rapture happens today, this earth is here. You say, well, wait a minute, we're talking, uh, uh, the government said maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, we're all dead. And God says, no, if you understand God's word, 
there's at minimum of a thousand and seven years before this earth could even potentially be destroyed. Climate scientists who have been measuring actual climatic conditions and their correlation with air pollution are giving us a warning. They're telling us that on the basis of immense amount of objective facts that they have analyzed, extremely catastrophic consequences will soon become unavoidable if we do not significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions within a few years, we're in real trouble. Now, let's put that in perspective to what Greider just said. There are no governmental officials saying that all human beings will be killed in 10 or 20 years. That's just not happening. Okay? Jeffrey Greider is making up that claim. He's doing this kind of cheap debating tactic called making a straw man, doing a straw man argument. Um, it's creating an argument that's easy to knock down. He's saying that government scientists are saying that all human beings are going to die in 10 or 20 years. But that's not really what the predictions are. So climate scientists do assert that manifestations of climate change are already actually killing large numbers of people. They're causing massive economic damage around the globe. There are fires and floods and storms that are taking place at a greater rate than what we used to see. Death and damage is forecast, in fact, to continue and to get worse much worse, unless we take practical measures to confront the problem. No one is saying that all of humanity is going to be killed, but there's going to be a lot of suffering and a lot of damage for us to deal with. And we can make small investments now, relatively small, uh, in order to prevent these costs coming in later. So, in the midst of this crisis... We have a Christian preacher like Jeffrey Greider, and he has a very different position. Greider is urging his followers to continue to burn fossil fuels like never before, to actually increase that, because he believes that the world should be destroyed. Greider believes that there is a God out there who has decided thousands of years ago that the world and all of the people on it and all of the other living things on our planet should be burned up. Greider worships this world-destroying God. And so he wants people to continue to pollute the air as an act of Christian worship. Now, what's more, Greider declares that the efforts to slow down climate change by reducing pollution of the atmosphere are part of a demonic plan to help Satan control the earth after the Christian rapture. Right. So Greider says, for example, that electric cars are being promoted because they will help demons hunt down their human victims. I am not making this up. Here is what Greider says. So what they want to do is they want to get you off of gas and petroleum. You want to know why they want you to drive an electric vehicle? Turn to Revelation 13, and I'll give you something that almost nobody talks about, but we'll talk about it. Do you know why they want you to drive an electric vehicle? Revelation 13 Verses 16 and 17. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. You want to know why they're going to force you to purchase an electric vehicle? It has nothing to do with climate change. It has nothing to do with greenhouse gases. It has nothing to do with carbon footprints. They're going to make you buy an electric vehicle 
because electric vehicles can be turned off through microchips. I want you to think about this. If you miss the rapture and you find yourself in the time of Jacob's trouble and everything is according to the mark of the beast, you can't buy, you can't sell, and you're going to flee to the mountains and you get in your electric vehicle and you go to start it up and nothing happens because they switched it off from the factory. This is why they want you to have electric vehicles because everything is heading towards the mark of the beast. There are, I think, too many things wrong with this conspiracy theory to talk about them all right now. I mean, consider, for example, the fact that cars running on fossil fuels actually have plenty of microchips in them. So if all that demons needed to stop a car would be for there to be a microchip present, there would be no reason for demons to prefer electric cars be around uh, instead of cars that burn fossil fuels. Besides that, aren't demons supposed to have magical powers? So why would a demon need to rely on microchip technology being present in order to stop a car? Why couldn't they just use their dark magic power? Anyway, it it just doesn't make any sense. Even if you accept the idea that demons are real. Well, unfortunately, Christian nationalist conspiracy theories don't need to make any sense. Christian nationalism arises out of centuries of theological tradition that does not require solid evidence or sound reasoning to support belief. With this blank check of faith, Christian nationalists can support any crazy idea that comes into their heads. And with the violence and hatred on display throughout the Christian Bible, Christian nationalists can feel justified in applying their crazy ideas to real malicious ends that hurt people. So it is that Christian nationalism comes back around full circle, making a hard right turn from holy climate inaction into white supremacy. In the very same sermon where he declares global climate change to be a part of the Christian God's divine plan for the world, Jeffrey Grider announces that he will soon be hosting another Christian nationalist preacher. We live in perilous times. Now, speaking of perilous times, next week, we're going to be doing a live podcast with Dr. Bill Grady. Dr. Bill Grady, huh? Well, if you have listened to this podcast before, you will remember who Bill Grady is. Bill Grady is a Baptist preacher who has repeatedly given sermons promoting white supremacy and anti-Semitism as a part of his Christian theology. Grady travels across the country, preaching at different churches, encouraging people in the audiences there to integrate Nazi ideology into their Christianity. He cites centuries-old beliefs from mainstream Christianity that Europeans have been chosen by the Christian God to rule over all other people, and that this white supremacy was ordained thousands of years ago just so that the United States could be founded as a white Christian nation that would spread Christianity around the world. Well, it is in Bill Grady's representation of this traditional Christian belief that the Christian roots of white supremacist ideology are made clear. Christian nationalists do not believe in racist ideology and reject the science of anthropogenic climate change just out of mere happenstance. These things are not random. These dogmatic, reality-denying political beliefs emerge from the very foundations of Christian doctrine. Christian nationalists do not hold these extremist beliefs in spite of Christianity. 
these Christian nationalist beliefs arise from aspects of Christian doctrine that have existed for an extremely long time. They are not an aberration from Christianity. They are an expression of it. So what can we do about that? Well, for one thing, we can reject these absolutist, supernatural claims of Christianity. The religion claims to have an authority over everything, to operate under a sovereign God who has the inherent right to control everybody, delegating that totalitarian control, quite conveniently, to his human Christian preachers. Now, if you want to join the movement to resist Christian nationalism, one way you can do that, one way that you can contribute meaningfully, is to elevate scientific understanding in public conversation. Christian nationalists want to center every policy debate in their articles of faith. They want every government policy to be based on their superstitious beliefs. They want every law to conform to the commands of their ancient texts. There is a valid role for philosophical ideas in discussions of government policies, but faith-based government is a dead end for responsible democratic debate. When people believe in things simply because they've been told to believe in them, there is never any room for compromise or development. There is no room in religious government for beliefs to change with the revelation of new facts because there never are any new facts acknowledged in a biblical worldview. That was all over and done thousands of years ago, right? So, keep yourself up to date on the latest in scientific research that is relevant to government policy debates. And then when you enter into those policy debates, you can cite the scientific insights that you've learned. Finally, you can subject religious claims to scientific skeptical scrutiny. When Christian nationalists insist that their God only approves of heterosexual marriages, for example, you can ask them for proof of that. How do you know that there is this God? How do you know that that's this God's opinion about marriage and sex? How do you know any of this is true? Ask them to back it up. Don't allow them to get away with the polite exemption of religious belief from doubtful questioning. When Christian nationalists come in and try to take control of government that manages our entire lives. Science and religion are no longer in separate spheres, you know, separate from each other, and one shouldn't touch the other. Once they start to try to change our reality, we have the right to challenge their superstitious, fantastical view, magical view of reality. Now, science is not infallible. But that's the whole point of science. It doesn't pretend to be infallible. Science is a process through which we acknowledge what we don't know. We identify the questions that need answering, and then we work on practical ways to address our ignorance. It's the testing of what we think we know to make sure that we can rely on it, rather than just pretending or presuming that whatever we've been taught is true and real. If Christian nationalists want real-world control over the United States, then we need to confront them with real-world questions about their beliefs in gods, angels, demons, magic spells, prophecies, curses, magical microchips and electric cars. There is too much at stake for us to allow faith-based nonsense like that conspiracy theory about demons, trying to put microchips in electric cars, letting that go unchallenged. If we want to stand up to the bullies of Christian nationalism, it's time for us to get real. Thank you for listening to another week of the podcast Stop Christian Nationalism. And we will be back next week because, unfortunately, the Christian nationalists are going to be back too. And we will be speaking out and standing up for as long as it is necessary for Christian nationalism to be put back in its proper place as a 
Christian religious belief that people have the right to believe, have the right to develop in their own sense without imposing it on the rest of us, without forcing it down our throats. So this podcast will be back next week, and um, I look forward to having you back. We have a lot to talk about.